Podcast World Cabin Studios. Welcome to another episode of The Value with your host, Kevin Valley. Yours truly. So this week, I am chatting with investment banker and management consultant, Stephen Jasmine, on what I think is a very interesting topic, and this is investing in Guyana. Now, Stephen is from Atlanta, currently living in Guyana. He is the group chairman and managing director of Smart City Clearing Company, which is an investment holding company focused on providing investors with opportunities for investing in Guyana. His practice includes four key markets, which are commercial real estate, oil and gas service companies, infrastructure development, and of course, technology. Stephen recognized Guyana's investment potential back when he first arrived in June 2017. And, you know, we talk about that story a little bit in the episode. He saw some stark similarities between Guyana and Louisiana. These included the offshore center for oil and gas production in the U.S. And this made him a real believer in Guyana's investability. Now, five years after settling in, Stephen and his team have a clear understanding of the Guyanese people, as well as the opportunities that lie ahead for the land of many waters. What Stephen brings to the table and offers to multi-generational blue-collar business owners, hoping to have a piece of the oil and gas pie, is his ability to speak the language of Fortune 500 companies, as well as our islands. He bridges the gap between local businesses who are seeking to work with large energy conglomerates by overseeing investments and handling key operational tasks required for big business collaborations. Now, <laughs> this episode has a lot in it, right? But this episode primarily explores the realities of Guyana's investability, including key challenges faced by foreign and local investors alike, opportunities for wealth building, economic growth, and of course, well, capital solutions for investment. So I invite you guys to check this out. I'm about to fade into the episode. And I really hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. All right, Stephen, Jasmine, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm in glad to get a chance to do this podcast for a while now. Back in my investment analyst days, back in RBC, so I'm talking over a decade ago, people always say that, hey, Guyana looks like it's on the rise, like there's promise in Guyana. And it wasn't only until several years later that they had their first oil fine. And then you just hear that, you know, everybody is going to Guyana. Like Guyana, everybody wants to look at Guyana as a possible investment opportunity and everything, you know. So it's really good to finally get to do an episode on Guyana and really speak to somebody who's on the ground in the merchant bank, investment banking sector in Guyana. So again, thanks. Thanks for this opportunity. No, my pleasure. So Stephen. You first landed in Guyana in June 2017. That is after you did one piece of business. I think you sold an offshore vessel or something like that. Uh, I think you say a company in one of the um, Eastern Caribbean islands. Now, for the audience, what I want you to do is sort of walk us through a picture, or even like a movie, so to speak. Because <laughs> we're starting in June 2017. You're, you're getting on the plane. You're getting ready to land in Guyana. And I know that you said that Guyana didn't really become investable at scale until March 2021. So we're talking about, I think it's a four and a half year, four and a half year, four and three quarter year sort of journey, right? And I know 
when you landed, you said that you knew two things for certain. One, that you found an amazing, beautiful country with limitless potential, as you call it, a true startup nation. And two, that you wanted to participate in its future in some small way. So tell us what it is that you saw there, what it has got you there in the first place, and just walk us through that, that journey. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've been an entrepreneur my entire career. I was fortunate. You know, I went to Emory University. And when I got out, I ended up launching a Fortune 500 marketing consulting company called Flashpoint. And doing that, we were consultant of record with companies like Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, Johnson & Johnson. And in that process, I was at the age of 21, straight out of university. I raised $3.5 million to start that company. And doing that, what it taught me, I was you know quickly thrust into the boardrooms and C-suites of these Fortune 500 companies. And so, and I'm dealing with their shareholders and the pension funds and, and the groups that are trying to help increase shareholder value. And so what that allowed me to do and what that kind of taught me was how to speak the language of Fortune 500 companies. And that's always been one of my specialties over the course of my career as a consultant and a banker. And when I landed in Guyana, I had gotten there because of some of the work I had done down in Louisiana. I think that's pretty critical to the story because most people don't know this, but Louisiana is the offshore center for the oil and gas industry in the United States. And we had developed with my partner a small family office consulting, fractional family office advisory practice down in Houma, Louisiana and Port Fouchon and Golden Meadows. And in that area, that's where we had a Bain Capital, Bain Consulting model that enabled us to really help families, these multi-generational blue-collar families, very similar to a lot of the families that I think are in your audience, mm-hmm. wealthy families that have had generational success, but aren't your typical go-to-billionaire, millionaire-type right. families. They've grown business from nothing to something. So you say that, sorry to cut you, but you say their um, investable assets will be somewhere between like, what, 100 million? What, what, what would you say? Yeah, 20, 20 million to about 100 million. Mm-hmm. Where it's about the asset base size. And so our model at the time was, and still has always been to this day, we don't want a piece of what you've, you and family have built. Hire us on a fee-for-service basis to help run it better, just like a PwC or EY, KPMG, Bain. And then, you know, let's work together to get you into some more diversified alternative investments. Because generally speaking, that segment of the market is self-made. They don't believe in the stock markets. They may have some equity accounts, but they play that more as like they're at the casino table than as a trader and, and look at it. They don't look to that as a wealth creation device. And doing that, I saw it created a lot of parallels and understanding of what the Southern Louisiana oil industry looked like. And through my ability to speak to Fortune 500 companies, I was able to help a lot of these multi-generational families increase their business with these companies because I understood how to speak their language, which is that of the Fortune 500 company, and bridge that gap with our clients and partners. And when I got down to Guyana in June of 2017, because of my relationships up into Houston, I was able to quickly, in my ability to speak Fortune 500, I was able to quickly ascertain that there was a lot more. It was just the tip of the iceberg. When I landed boots on the ground, it was about 2 billion barrels of oil they had found. And now they're up over to 13 billion barrels just in Guyana. And so in the five years that I've been working in the space. And so when I got there, it was got off the plane and just saw opportunity, knew the environment. You know, Southern Louisiana is very similar 
much like the Caribbean. Guyana reminded me of that kind of riverboat town, much like New Orleans is. And so it had that kind of vibe with the brown water, they call it. I like it. that parallel. I like that parallel. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's very much similar mindset, similar type of people, similar cultures, ethnically diverse. You know, I saw opportunity and I knew from past experiences that being an entrepreneur, I knew that there was going to be growth coming. No one knows what that's going to be when you get out and start building a business. You have no idea where it's going to go. You have you have a vision, and I had put together a business plan and you know a strategic plan, and we've executed it flawlessly and then some over the past five years. But for the first twelve months while I was in country, I really you know spent that time living in hotels. I lived in the Pegasus for the first six months, and then I lived in the Ramada for the next six months, and you know just trying to get a feel for the environment and the people and then get comfortable enough to go lease a house and lived in a community right in Georgetown and spent the time there and, and really got to know the people and fell in love with the people, fell in love with the opportunity, continued to see the growth, but it's, it's been slow, you know, it's been fits and starts mm-hmm. and it's been a challenge, but that's how all businesses are. And that's all small business owners, whether they're first generation or second generation, know that when you're building businesses, it's you grow, you hit a plateau, you grow, you hit a plateau, you grow, you hit a plateau. And Guyana as a country has been going through a lot of those same processes. Yeah. Now I just want to interject for a second. And I want to go back to, um, you know, so the parallel you're making with your experience in Louisiana and how it translates into what you do in Guyana. So I understand that you were a chief restructuring officer focused on helping companies managing changes in the offshore oil and gas sector in Louisiana. So, I mean, that adds a lot of credence to what you're doing in Ghana, as well as um, touching back on the Bain model, that main consulting model that you wanted, that you used in Louisiana. Can you just give us an outline of how that works? I'm a big sucker for frameworks. Man. I just want to. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, Bain is a management consulting firm. And it's got Bain Capital and Bain Consulting. And so Bain Consulting is the equivalent of a KPMG or EY, PwC, McKinsey. They help monitor their portfolio companies and their investments to make sure that they're being run optimally. Bain Capital raises the money to go out and buy those companies. And so together, it creates a nice synergy. And so to this day, we still follow that same model down in Guyana. We've now divided it. Smart City Clearing Company is an investment holding company and financial service advisory practice. Some people will call it a merchant bank. Some people will call it a hedge fund. We're unregulated at this stage. Over the next 24 to 36 months, that will be changing. We will be buying some banking assets and becoming a legitimate banking institution as a part of our growth strategy and entry strategy into Guyana. But along the way, We've been building out our platform, and so Flashpoint still exists, and Flashpoint acts as the consultants that come in and help oversee our portfolio companies and help ins- oversee some of the investments that we're making and handle the back the day-to-day operational challenges that you face working in a frontier market. Yeah. And I mean, that investment holding company structure, I mean, I understand that in Guyana, the tax system, I don't think the investment companies pay corporate tax in Ghana, at least per the last um, 2022 budget, whereas other companies are paying tax anywhere from 20% up to 45%. When we work in Guyana, we work purely as a foreign direct investor. 
Mm. And so we don't, as a banker myself, our organization hires investment banks in the regions that we're looking to raise capital to raise the capital for us on our behalf. Right. So be that in Jamaica, be that in Trinidad, or be that in Guyana, we actually will hire the bankers who are licensed to raise the capital. We're acting purely in the capacity as a foreign direct investor. And then that's where we bring out our deal teams and our advisory teams to come in and structure things such that they're done in the most tax advantaged way that's compliant with the lawyers and the consultants like PwC and EY and KPMG. Those organizations advise us on how to properly structure our investment into Guyana. Mm -hmm. So this way, we're not actually at this stage and phase of our growth and our business plan and model, we're not subject to Guyanese financial services regulatory oversight because we're acting just like we're investing our own money because of the way we're structuring the, the inflows into the country. And because we're not actually raising money inside the country itself, generally, we're raising it outside or what we do. We're working with licensed professionals to raise it on our behalf for the company that we're bringing into the country. Does that make sense? It's definitely really smart, especially given Guyana's local content policy. That was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. How do you get around that local content policy where they say that most of the employees, X percent of the employees must be Guyanese citizens or whatnot if you're coming in to operate inside of there? And I was also thinking about Guyanese diaspora, right? So those living in the UK, America, Canada, wherever, those guys who want to invest in Guyana, like how, you know, what's the best structure? Now, again, um, you'll caution the audience, this is everybody do your own research. This is not investment advice, just, um, you know, two guys having a conversation. Yeah, no, no, no. First of all, I am a big believer and a full 100% supporter of the local content policy in Guyana. It still has some growing pains. They just finalized it. There's some things being worked out with it. But at its core, I believe it's needed. It's going to help raise Guyana for all Guyanese, both in the diaspora and directly in Guyana. As a result of the local content policy, though, you got to keep in mind that it only affects anything touching the oil field services industry. Okay. And so we do a lot in real estate. We do stuff in infrastructure development. We do stuff in a lot of different industries and verticals and agriculture, mining, those industries don't have the same local content requirements that the oil field services companies do. But the local partnerships that we put together and anything that we do in country as far as the oil field services industry will be and is completely 100% local content oriented and certified and in full compliance with the faith and tenor of the law. And we believe that if you play by the rules that are set out, you know, we expect just like any other investor and any other operator, we expect the rules to be fair and a level playing field. And we expect them to be clearly and equally and fairly applied to all parties involved. And we work in good faith to meet those objectives and be compliant, you know, because I'm not Guyanese, I'm an American citizen. I'm there as a you know, outside investor. And so we want the companies that we're involved with that are involved in the oil field services industry to absolutely meet those requirements. And and that's what's expected. And the board makes those decisions. And and we work with our lawyers in country to make sure that we're compliant. And so, but ultimately it does help accelerate the knowledge transfer and the ability for the industry as a whole to grow. It does have some unintended consequences. And there are some challenges that it's going to face that 
I see coming along the horizon, but yeah, you know, I think those things will be addressed as they start to come up and really it boils down to access to capital and how the contracts are structured and things like that. Those things will sort themselves out and whatever the government decides to do and how they decide to approach it, you know, it'll, as long as it's applied equally to everyone and, and everyone's given the right respect and honor to ability to fix any issues, then it should be fine. And that's yep. really how our focus is because it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And that's one thing when we, I started the conversation talking about my ability to speak fortune 500 and the ability to speak fortune 500. A big part of that is the ability to do paperwork and to be able to know how to get on vendor lists and know how to get on that. So if you're used to that kind of world and that mindset, then local content isn't as a scary, challenging thing because ultimately it's just having all your corporate governance documents in place and doing all your reporting and and, and doing things. And our organization works mainly at an institutional level with investors. And so audited financials and third-party compliance and corporate governance are all things we deal with on a daily basis. So for us, that's not as big of a challenge as it is for an up-and-coming Guyanese company or a Trinidadian that's looking to come into Guyana and form some partnerships. You know, those kinds of situations are going to be a lot more challenging. And it's mainly because they don't know how to speak that language. They don't know how to do it. And they're going to be led astray and they don't understand the importance of not cutting corners and doing things right and thoroughly. And that's where I think people are going to get affected by it. And that's where you'll see a lot of upset people who are even Guyanese that are trying to adhere to it. But it's just the knowledge curve. But this is a part of that knowledge curve. And I believe the government will put things in place to help accelerate the education that's involved. When you're going through, there's an interesting theory that's out there. I study complexity theory and chaos theory, and I'm a big geek and spend a lot of time <laughs> flying around the world. And so read a lot of books and, 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 and study a lot of things. And historically, for the past 50 years of Guyana's experience, before it was found oil, it was a very mechanical system. It was very solid state, didn't change. It was very predictable. It was just a small ecosystem, a small environment, not a lot of outside moving pieces. It wasn't an organism that was living and breathing and growing. Now what's going on is it's transitioning from that very basic mechanical environment to a very complex environment where as you go through this kind of change and shift, actions have consequences and unintended consequences and reaction and challenges that you'll face as you kind of go through this arc. And I've got some good videos that I'd love to share with your listeners on it because it's oh. a great kind of study to, to really understand where Guyana is going because moving from a predictable mechanical system to this environment that is an ecosystem that has all these interdependencies makes it much, much more challenging. Think of a two-stroke engine motor that you use to do your lawnmower. You know what I mean? It's very simple. It's easy to understand. It, you know, if something breaks on it, it's one of three things. You know, you can usually go to the store, pick up the missing piece. But as you start adding these layers of complexity, the regulations, not just the local content, you're talking about EPA regulations are starting to be addressed. Immigrant regulations are starting to be addressed. All these moving pieces just make the system much more complex. And then you combine that with the fact that there's a lack of real 
technology infrastructure to support it, it does make it challenging. And it does, this is where the five years in country on the ground, learning it, finding the right partners that know how to navigate those systems have really enabled us to run a lot further, faster, because the rules have always been there. And that's the one thing that I love about Guyana. And as I sit and kind of travel the world and start talking to boardrooms and pension funds and insurance companies and asset managers and capital markets of teams who are looking to invest in the growth of Guyana, I really focus in on the fact, the question that always comes up, you know, is Guyana going to go the way of Nigeria or Norway? And I said, because of Guyana's past as a former British colony, it's not the way of Nigeria because it has that regulatory framework that came out of its British roots. And so there really is a lot of the rules and there's sort of a playbook that is established already. It may not be perfect. There may need to be a lot of pieces of it that need to be rewritten or reissued and evolved to keep up with the changes that the country is going through as it goes through this hyper growth stage. But at least it's created an environment that it's not the Wild West that you see trying to do business in Africa. And especially with all the time that I've been spending over the past year, I've spent probably about six months of the past year living out in the Middle East, working with a lot of the investors out here because they have a big interest in Guyana, not just for the oil and gas sector. Actually, that's the least of it. They're interested in Guyana because they see food security. Okay. They see growth, they see natural resources, they see a lot of opportunity. They see it as a launch pad to all of South America. And for them, they're looking for new opportunities. They're looking to put money to, to where it can go into hard growth things. And especially with oil at over 100 a barrel right now, it's a whole different market. You know, These countries that were formerly financially struggling are all of a sudden flush with cash. You know, Even if you look at Trinidad, a bunch of the mothballed midstream projects that have been on the pipeline all of a sudden have become back to life because oil is at such a high price and natural gas is at such a high price and we're entering a commodity super cycle. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you end up in an inflationary environment. People seek to find tangible real growth. Guyana to this day still only has less than five class A office buildings. It only has still two, maybe three internationally level caliber hotels. And so with that, it presents a huge opportunity for a lot of different areas of growth. Okay. And I mean, thanks for thanks for all of that. <laughs> now, typically, one of the best barometers of a country's economic growth is by looking at its stock exchange, right? And that's one of the is usually one of the easiest ways to invest in that country. However, I mean, you look at the Guyanese stock exchange, I think you may have 12 or maybe just over 12 companies trading. I read somewhere that you can only trade on a Monday. Is that right? So in terms of... It, it's still an open cry system. Yeah. <laughs> right. So in terms of investing in Guyana, and I heard you when you said that your high net worth clients back in Louisiana, they detest stock markets as a whole. They don't see it as a place to generate real wealth. I'd love to get your thoughts on, well, A, if does investing in Guyana stock exchange make sense? And B, also just a higher level picture on, do you think investing in stock markets makes sense in terms of building a, in a wealth generating portfolio? As entrepreneurs, 
and business owners and bankers, because I wear all three hats in my role, it's all about your cost of access to capital and your cost of capital. And the cheapest cost of capital that you can access as an entrepreneur or as a banker is the public equity markets. And that is really been one of my focuses over the past two years is really figuring out how to create financial products to allow institutional investors and retail investors to gain access to Guyana's growth much earlier in the growth cycle. But with that, you need to have a sophisticated regulatory system to support innovative products in the financial services sector. So I've spent a lot of time working with the Jamaican Stock Exchange. I've worked with Latinx. I'm out here in the Middle East working and discussing and having meetings with some of all the major stock exchanges out here to create products and pools and mutual funds and different types of structures so that the public equity can actually get access to Guyana's growth. Because institutional investors and retail investors can't go to Guyana and set up a company themselves. And so to your point, investing in vehicles that can you go down and do the legwork for them and they get to participate in that upside is a massive opportunity. And it's something that I'm hyper-passionate about and very focused on. Mm-hmm. And I spent literally an entire year developing some of these products. And I look forward to over the next 24 months, bringing them to market. And in doing that, it's going to create a lot of wealth for a lot of people. And there's two ways to build a middle class in a country. You do it through home ownership and you do it through the domestic stock market. Guyana, I believe, has a lot of growth. Their domestic stock exchange does have to evolve and grow. It's got to get digitized. It's got to get, once again, like everything has to be reinvented for the new Guyana that is emerging because it's a startup nation. And so as it gets reinvented, we look to play a key role in that and do look to participate in that. And But at the same token, there's a middle ground where you don't just have to go invest in ExxonMobil and Hess and Schlumberger and Halliburton mm-hmm. to gain access to Guyana, which are all good opportunities. But this is where my focus is, is working in some of these tier two markets around the world to create products that will allow us as an asset manager to get cheap access to capital, bring it to Guyana, become an asset management firm, once again, as a foreign direct investor, leveraging public equity and showing that, you know, the best part about those solutions is it provides price discovery and price transparency, because that's one of the things stock markets allow. And when you have a country like Guyana, where no one can tell you what the return on investment is or what the true weighted average cost of capital is from a valuation analysis, because no one has been able to really produce those numbers, mm-hmm. you know, outside of international oil companies, but for the regular average investors and for the entrepreneurs that are out there, they have no idea. Yeah. And so by creating some of these facilities and these products as an asset manager, it accelerates my ability to show the world the returns that Guyana can provide. And that's something that really excites me and also makes me, puts me in a position when I'm talking to investment committees and trying to raise capital for the country. As you know, when you deal with anything in the public equity market, you've got compliance, corporate governance, you've got to be able to have audited financials, you've got to open the kimono and show the world. And so you can be held accountable for that, the good and the bad. And so as long as you're a good manager and you're producing solid returns and increasing value and the world can see that, it's going to increase their 
it's the flywheels catching. It's going to increase their ability to actually want to get involved in Guyana earlier and sooner and faster because they're able to see independently this is how the returns we can have access to, especially for the diaspora, which isn't just the Guyanese diaspora, but the whole Caribbean diaspora. I like what you said on um, focusing on cost of capital. And I guess when you flip that around, you talk about required return on investment, right? Because, I mean, so cost of capital components, you have cost of debt and you have cost of equity, right? Yep. On the cost of debt side, I try to get credit ratings on Guyana just, you know, in preparation for this conversation. I couldn't find anything. I don't know if they are out there, you know, so how you price bonds. I did read somewhere that the um, average interest rates that banks charge in the past year was something around 8.88% or 9% or something like that. So that was some sort of barometer. But on the equity side, if you have a, a stock exchange with 12 companies, and uh, you know, and it's trading only on Monday. So we have that illiquidity going on there. Because it's inefficient, you know, you're not really able to get that proper price discovery or at least proper value discovery that you would in a more efficient market or even in a market such as Jamaica, which as we know, it's has been the, the best stock exchange in 2018, 2019 and possibly beyond. You know, so... Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of tricky. I know you want to say something. Because I, uh, I'm actually going to move on to the real estate point. But so if you wanted to say something on the stock exchange, but Well, no, no. And that's where Guyana's stock market will evolve and it will get to that point where it get, becomes much more liquid. But right now, that illiquidity, what we're doing in preparation for that, because I know that day is going to come and, and we may actually hopefully be a part of helping lead that evolution just because of our experience and wisdom and the team and, and value that we've created. And, and foresight. And foresight. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is we're creating and developing products to list on other stock exchanges that are more, not direct listing companies themselves, mm-hmm. but direct listing funds. Mm-hmm. So this way, when the Guyanese stock exchange does get to that point of maturity, we can then direct list the portfolio of companies that are a part of a fund on another stock market on the Guyanese Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. And then that portfolio turns from a private equity portfolio on that foreign stock exchange into a Guyana ETF because now it's a basket of companies that are trading on the Guyanese Stock Exchange. And so we're, instead of direct listing some of those portfolio companies on those foreign stock exchanges, which we may still do, but not all of them, we know in preparation, if we make the fund a private equity fund, that's traded on that stock exchange, that has that transparency for the portfolio companies to show the world the success. And then we end up in five to seven years when the market matures and is ready for it, we can actually direct list those companies on the Guyanese stock exchange. That becomes an ETF on those foreign stock exchanges. And so then they get to participate in the bump as an exit. And so it creates that typical private exit in that five to seven year time horizon while still simultaneously allowing us to capture the growth going from a privately held company to a publicly held company. And so it's actually a compounded return. And so that's the product that I've spent a lot of time with my team developing. Yeah. And and that's going to be, that's going to be us dollar denominated, right? Yes. Yes. It'll be us dollar denominated. And we're talking to exchanges in the middle East and, and hopefully the Jamaican stock exchange will be the first one that we, we launch one of these products with. Because one, uh, one common issue that I guess in plague in the islands, especially Trinidad, 
is this lack of availability of hard currency. So investors looking to invest in, in our Minnow Islands, they're not typically too keen on investing in, okay, well, you may invest in Trinidadian dollars or Jamaican dollars or Guyanese dollars. They want to be able to invest in hard currency and get hard currency returns. I also like that um, sectoral approach so that you're essentially removing the, the burden of, on your investors of having to do the individual research per company or whatnot. You guys will pick the best out of the lot and say, okay, you want to invest in this sector, agriculture maybe, you know, you can invest it in our ETF. Okay, that's good. All right, so back on the um, on the real estate. So you mentioned that the growth in the middle class could also be seen as growth in home ownership. Now, I also remember you mentioning that Guyana only has less than five class A offices, right? So I think there's also a lot of growth in commercial real estate as much as it may have been impacted during the COVID pandemic. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on there in terms of, you know, the commercial real estate market, the homeownership market, or potentially even the multifamily real estate market? Yeah, you know, like all aspects of the Guyanese legislative and regulatory frameworks, some changes need to be made to help financial institutions be more willing to work with homeowners to be able to create more products that make sense. You know, the, I think they just passed or they're finalizing the Condominium Act so that they can actually have condos, okay. which is great. Well, they weren't, you know, they're not allowed to have condominiums before? Was no, it? they weren't. Like these are the basic kind of fundamental things that you sometimes take for granted in a more mature economy or a more mature country. Yeah. And so Guyana is now putting those things in place. Okay. We're a big believer in industrial, commercial, class A office, multifamily. We personally are staying more away from the residential and the retail real estate model, mainly because it's very competitive. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that are, are looking to get into that. And because technology's changed so much, there's a lot of people that have a lot of technological solutions and innovations around it. It's just an area where we feel we can't add a lot of value. But with that being said, real estate as a whole is a place where there's tremendous wealth creation opportunities. And so there's, for us, that was the first thing we launched when we got to Guyana was a full service Western style commercial real estate firm. And we've got over 2 million square feet in pre-development right now. And wow. we're working through the process. And But when you start to play in that world, you've got to realize that things like title and land systems and transports and, and the process to buy and sell land and putting things like title insurance in place are all critical pieces to the puzzle that still have to be further fleshed out and developed. And is a large part why some of that growth and what you would expect would be a lot faster hasn't come yet. Then also because Guyana's land values have always been high to begin with because there's not a lot of prime real estate because it's a small country and Georgetown's a small city. Real estate values all went up. And then the people that own that real estate said, oh, well, there's oil here. So my land's worth 3x what it should be. But at the end of the day, when you're a developer, the math doesn't tab out to what the valuation is from the other people when you start looking at it. And that becomes a struggle and a challenge. And so with that, that's a big part of what we're facing. And But ultimately, we absolutely love the real estate development markets in Guyana, and we will continue to push and make them a, a reality and participate in it and take them to the next level. Yeah. Personally, I don't play in the real estate markets that much, but what I do respect about it, especially observing folks' real estate, I mean, real estate um, investments and ownership in 
been in, well, in the Trinidad market and other development markets and also in developed markets is that once you check the boxes right, you could benefit from both capital appreciation and illiquidity from renting it out or, or what have you. But more so in these, in these small island states, yeah, once you have the right location, once you have all these other things working for you, yeah, you could get significant capital appreciation in a relatively short period of time. Well, and that's also where some of the challenges are, is that there's not that pre-development capital to support. When you want to build an eight-story office tower, you want to build a mall or a retail shopping complex or a mixed-use development like you'd see in Miami, you got to spend a half million to a million to a million and a half dollars mm-hmm. to do that, to just get to the point where you can go to the bank and ask for the money to get the ability to actually build it. And so that's where a lot of people don't appreciate it. And then you also have to fill it with creditworthy tenants. And so that's where you've got to really work. And that's where there's a big gap in the market. And that's one of the gaps we're looking to fill is helping to come in and create financial products for us to be able to provide some of that liquidity in exchange for us being able to participate in the projects. And that's sort of our model is that having a piece of land is great, but unless you've got the half million or million dollars for us to be able to help take it to the next level with you in partnership, there's not a whole lot we can do. Now, if it's an unlevered piece of land and the right piece of real estate in the right location, like we'll help work with you to go to the bank and get the loan and take a loan against the land so that you have that money. There's ways to get creative about it, but it still takes a team of experts to come in and put the packages together and to go through the process. And that's the value that we've been creating for our clients and our partners. And that's where we work. But Ultimately, it takes money to make money. And that's the one thing that all entrepreneurs need to remember is that there's all different levels of entrepreneurship and there's all different ways to grow your businesses. But if you really want to scale and grow, you can't just have nothing and try to make something. You've got to put the work and the time and you have to have the resources to invest into making it successful. And that's the real challenge and struggle that a lot of people face. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just... You know, yeah, no, I, I recently um put out an article on LinkedIn. The title of it, Why Ideas Have No Value. Yeah. And it goes to what you say. I mean, it's not just you could just create nothing or, um, something out of nothing. You mean you have to actually put in the work. You have to get the partnerships in place and, and everything in place so that your idea actually becomes something of value. Especially when you talk about, you know, using creativity and your expertise as a financial professional to create value in the structuring structuring transactions or structuring different financial packages for firms. All right. So I want to pivot back and onto the business side a little bit right now. So the 2022 budget for Ghana says that real GDP is, is projected to grow by 47.5% in 2022, with the non-oil economy growing by 7.7%, as spillovers from the oil and gas sector propel services sector growth. And earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that oil is currently above 100. So all the oil economies are saying hooray, right? And now, you know, here in Trinidad, we're looking to, we're making some projects <laughs> or whatnot. And, and it's great for oil and gas economies, but it's also our Achilles heel, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, even broader than that, again, looking at the broader Caribbean region, is I think there's too much reliance on things that we don't have much control over. So you have many of the islands you rely on tourism. Again, that relies on what's going on outside. Is there a pandemic? Is there a hurricane? Is there a crime? Whatever. What's happening in the airport? Whatever. And then on, you know, when it comes to commodities like oil and gas or 
be it bananas or bauxite or what have you. You know, you're subject to the vagaries of the market, the demand and supply for those commodities and the prices, and that impacts your economy. Which so my question there is, how do you see Guyana being able to diversify and you know build its global competitiveness? I mean, yes, we, we're, we're happy for the oil and gas revenues and the exports we're able to generate from that. But how do you take that and transform it from what you say as a startup nation, you know, I guess categorized by high growth in the early stages? Uh, but how do you get that into a more growth stage, that's a stable growth economy? What, is that, what does that picture look like? Well, I think it's a great question and it's a great point. And I think this is one area where Guyana has done a phenomenal job of really focusing in on trying to expand out and not be, quote unquote, a one-trick pony and just only focus on their oil revenue. They've made diversification a massive priority. The gas-to-shore pipeline is a major initiative in that because it all comes down to the price of power. And so as the price of power comes down, industrialization, value-added manufacturing will occur. There's a whole downstream petrochemical industry that can develop, much like is in Trinidad. Even outside of that, getting into things like agriculture. Still to this day, 50% of the fruits and vegetables in the country every day get thrown away. And in large part, it has to do with the cost of energy because it costs too much to store it. It costs too much to can it. It costs too much to keep it refrigerated. You know, And until the price of power comes down, you can't diversify out of that. And a lot of my conversations globally, I'm being asked, Guyana is a country that's 86,000 square miles, you know, roughly 82, 86,000. I always mess it up. But Either way, it's a large country, especially compared to the rest of the Caribbean. And there's savannas. It's right on the equator. You can grow everything. You know what I mean? It is a breadbasket. And so food security, especially for a lot of my Middle Eastern families and clients and and the sovereign wealth funds we're dealing with, they really see Guyana as an opportunity to truly diversify and gain access to a market where they can help invest and lock up 50-year contracts to source foods and things like that. And that's where the true diversification is starting to happen. And, and, and I believe that's an area, especially as we go through a period of hyperinflation globally and, and then into stagflation, mm-hmm. you know, with rising interest rates and, and post-COVID environment, this is where people want to look to where they can actually touch and feel growth and where they can see things that they know that they're going to need tomorrow and they can start investing in it today because the institutional investors in the halls that I walk they're thinking about tomorrow, not today. And they know if they want to get real returns, they got to start planting the seeds today because you sow what you reap. And so in order to do that, Guyana is perfectly poised for it. And the government is working as hard as it can to you know, reduce the cost of power and make sure that they do focus on things outside of just the energy sector. So agriculture, mining, there's a lot of different sectors, the value-added manufacturing. Yeah. Guyana's got massive bauxite reserves. It's got massive, some of the best sand in the world. So glass manufacturing, but those industries take an immense amount of power to be successful. But if you've got a massive natural gas field off the coast of the country, you can bring that natural gas ashore and drop your cost of power down dramatically. And that's exactly what the administration's working on and doing and, and focused on being successful with and will really push its growth. Yeah, and I had also, again, in doing my research, I had also penciled out agriculture as, a, as another potential growth industry for Ghana. However, I was in a way of the 50% wastage rate, but also, I mean, 
flooding and then the pandemic and whatnot. You know, so, and I guess I want to introduce a new sector now. How would you say tech enablement of um, sectors like agriculture could help uh, economy like Ghana with Guyana, sorry, with food security or so? Well, it's amazing because part of, I want to use the tech example and, and bring it to a very concrete fact. You know, the cost of production in Guyana for the oil is between 20 and $25 a barrel. Okay. And which makes it one of the most competitive in the world. Yeah. And with that, it's all due to the fact that Guyana has no legacy tech investments and no legacy infrastructure. And so when they came in and found the oil fields, they didn't have to, they didn't find new fields and have the financing and the overhead of all the old fields. Much like in Africa, they went from having no telephones to having cell phones. They didn't have landlines. And so that enabled an entire phase of a life cycle of growth to be skipped. And so technology enablement is what you're speaking of in digital transformation yeah. is going to help streamline and decrease the cost of implementation of everything in Guyana, every sector, even the concept of an FPSO, deep water oil and gas. What's an FPSO, sorry? The floating production storage unit, offloading units. Okay. So essentially they're the big ships that are built in the middle of the, the massive tankers mm-hmm. that all the underwater wells feed. Okay. And they collect the oil from the field, and then they discharge it directly onto the oil tankers to be brought to the refineries. And so I know Liza Field 1, the first FPSO, was slated to come in at about $4.5 billion, I believe. Mm-hmm. Our team wrote a paper on this. You can find it on our website, sc3.ltd, Tales from the Frontier somewhere. It's in one of our research reports we issued. But in that report, we realized that the actual cost for Liza Phase 1 was closer to about 3.6 billion. That's $900 million in savings. And a large part of that was due to technology savings and efficiencies because of the use of state-of-the-art technology that didn't exist. If you really study the offshore oil and gas industry, the most successful offshore oil fields are all up in the North Atlantic in some of the most inhospitable places on earth where they were drilling to get oil and it costs so much, but you're dealing with the North Seas in the harshest of harsh environments and to get the oil out of the ground. You know, here we're in the Caribbean where it's a perfect environment and with using AI and machine learning and, you know, all the technologies, the ground penetrating radars and everything that they have, right. they're able to map things and understand things so much more efficiently. Efficiency means decreased costs which means higher returns for investors, which means and faster time to market. And so in that process, I point to the oil field so you can see it as a real example of it happening in action. But every industry and every sector that Guyana goes into, even fintech, if you look at what Guyana is going to do in the fintech space as it evolves, you don't need to open a branch on every street corner. This is your branch. Your cell phone is your branch. You know what I mean? And so in that new world and in that new paradigm, there's so much more efficiency. So those savings get passed on to the shareholders and just continue to juice the returns that you make as an investor because A, you're not having to finance that legacy infrastructure that was already put in. 
you're not having to actually invest in new infrastructure that's not needed. You're going straight to the end of the, the line where you're creating value and you're doing it in a time frame that's much more compact. So from that perspective, I see digital transformation and technology really pushing things forward quickly so that we can make it happen much faster. What took the Middle East 50 years to do, I see it happening in 10 years in Guyana. And it's literally because of technology and because they're going to skip and they don't have this legacy overhang of that archaic infrastructure that if you have that infrastructure, that means someone had to pay for it to be developed and installed. And chances are they're still having to pay for it this day. And if you take that out of the equation, the numbers are just dramatically different when you really start digging in. Yeah. All right. So it seems like tech is definitely a great investment opportunity to really magnify returns in, in Ghana. And I love that you went on to fintech because so I wanted to go there as well. So what sort of fintech advancements or fin- work in, in the fintech space do you see happening there? And is there any element of cryptocurrency and Web3 and all of that involved there? We're involved in a couple of projects that are still uh, in stealth mode that we're not quite at liberty to, to fully disclose okay. yet. So, But we are excited to be involved in the space and we are looking at it and involved with it, not just in Guyana, but throughout the broader Caribbean too, which is exciting. Web3 and decentralized finance and crypto are all common themes. The Caribbean globally has led the central bank development crypto dollars with the ECBD, the Bahamas the sand dollar, you know what I mean? And so, and then there's the JDEX dollar that's coming. So there's crypto and these kinds of things are coming. They're here. Personally, I'm not a big crypto guy. I stay more in traditional fintech uh, and decentralized finance just because there's so much opportunity there still, especially in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. I think Bitcoin and crypto is a great space to play in if you're an active trader. And you can monitor the markets, but I'm not a fast money guy. I'm a patient capital guy. And so it's just not by my nature, something that I'm very passionate about. Now, I know enough to be dangerous and I've, I definitely know some of the world's foremost experts in it. <laughs> and they're looking to diversify out and invest in traditional growth, you know, and because yeah. they want to, you know, yeah, they love making their high returns, but they know one bad day. And, you know, like you've seen now, you know. Bitcoin's under 20K after being up over 60. So Listen, I'm a big fundamentalist. I invest in what I understand. I look at where things are going. I don't, I mean, I, all right. So in a previous life, I covered the tech sector as an equity analyst. I don't love things that look like bubbles to me. You know, where just, you just see too much fast growth. You're seeing acquisitions here, acquisitions there, people overpaying, overpaying everywhere. Those things make me nervous. Yeah, I mean, if I can get a whack of, 20, 18%, 20%. And, you know, I'm getting 25 plus percent IRRs on top of that, mm-hmm. really looking at 50 to 75% IRRs on top of a whack of 20 to 25%. Yeah. I mean, well, that's they, real they, growth they, and, and I'm happy <laughs> with it. You know what I mean? And that's not 10x, 1000x growth that you would see with traditional, some of the tech stuff, but every person needs to do and invest in what they're comfortable in and what they feel they can afford to lose and afford to put that risk and, and what they can focus on and learn and be passionate about. So yeah. what works for me doesn't always work for the next guy. And so it's, you got to be you at the end of the day. Yeah. I, I like to borrow from Warren Buffett's, you know, value investing principle, you know, investing yep. in strong long-term um, growth companies. And so, all right. So just before we get, get ready to 
get to the um, to wrapping up this this conversation. I just want to touch a little bit on um Dubai's investment in Guyana recently. I know you you were the spearhead of that. I think it was a, something like a five million US dollar investment. Yep. Yeah, kind of tell what I was like, what I was about. Yeah, yeah, no. So uh, part of why I fell in love with Guyana is that I knew I had a global Rolodex from my cyber and tech background. I worked a lot in Silicon Valley and done a lot in technology over the years. And this is why I always call Guyana a startup nation. And so I've kind of have two hats. I've spent a lot of time working in the Valley with the big internet companies and doing a lot in cybersecurity and cyber arms trading and stuff over the years. And doing that, I knew I had relationships globally that would allow me to bring access to things into Guyana. And so when I was in Guyana, I honestly never really expected to raise a lot of money out of the Caribbean. I knew I had families and clients and partners you know globally that i could work with and wonderful emirati family has stepped up and it's actually a jordanian family based in the emirates has developed using tech some construction tech that we put a partnership together to open the first manufacturing facility in guyana and we're going through that process and it's not going as quickly as we'd like but it's also because we've been asked to handle some bigger opportunities that we've had to take on and because of our experience and what we're working on and so with that, though, it's a privilege and an honor to, to be able to bring some of these global investors into Guyana and, and kind of work with the government as a partner and as a value add to help create these opportunities. And so the government of Guyana stepped in and gave us all the entitlements we needed and, and helped make it a reality. And we had a great signing ceremony and the technology is going to be up and running in Guyana when the time is right. And for us, this is where we shine and this is where there's opportunity. And it's not just that one family. I've got a couple dozen families I'm working with out here and, and looking at a lot of these different opportunities. And so for us, and it plays into our construction, you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, if you're building 2 million square feet, the free cash flows, when you look at the numbers just off of your, your ready mix cement that you're going to need to pour for 2 million square feet is $6 million. So the guy that pours that cement is going to make $6 million in profit for 2 million square feet. Why not own that cement company that's going to build that 2 million square feet? So, you know, those are the kinds of things we look at and then looking to bring in technologies to make it even more efficient and more profitable is really kind of like we discussed throughout the theme of the call with the digital transformation initiatives. And so it's, it's very exciting. Yes, it's very exciting indeed. You know, I mean, I want to bring this back full circle. At the top of this conversation, I, I quoted you where you said that Guyana did not become investable at scale until March 2021. And then, I'm doing math in my head, seven months later in October, you got firms in Dubai investing and stuff. But again, to bring this full circle, what would you say made Guyana investable as of March 2021? If I had to list the top factors in a bullet point format. Well, it, it had to do with the post-COVID environment, the peaceful change of government, the getting the two years of budgets done. March 2021 was when the second, the 2021 budget was finalized. And that's really when things could start to really begin. There's still a long process and there's still a lot going on. Most recently, a massive $400 million shore-based project was announced with NRG Holdings, which is three major families in Guyana, which I'm very excited about and very proud of. And I know they're going to do phenomenally well. And we're seeing those kinds of opportunities start to open. And you know what people don't realize is that it takes a good year to 18 months for good projects to become reality. Yeah. It gets back to that. You have to spend a half a million to a million to a million and a half dollars to build a hundred key hotel, to build a $400 million shore-based project. They spent a lot more than that, I'm sure. 
and doing that just because you're not, first of all, you're seeing lots of growth everywhere in Guyana. If you go down there, boots on the ground, but people don't realize the amount of stuff that's happening behind the scenes while they're working diligently to build the legislative engine room for the country to grow properly because you need the enabling legislation and it needs to be revised and cleaned up and, and done and they're doing it. And we also need to build the financial services engine room, you know, to properly securitize the product and bring it to market. And that's really where SC3's role is and where we're focused on providing that for institutional and high net worth investors and working together to make those things a reality. And so we prefer to keep a very low profile. I love sharing opportunities like this. I take them selectively and targeted. And I love to talk about Guyana. And that's what I do. I mean, I've literally been on the road for the entire year living out of hotels. I think I showed you the whiteboard I had brought yeah, into yeah. my hotel. You whiteboard that you mandate that you must catch every hotel you go to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, I've been here in Saudi Arabia for six weeks working on some massive partnerships and projects. And there's now currently, as of this week, a, a delegation of 50 uh, members from the government of Saudi Arabia and investors down there. And we're here closing some of the deals that are going to enable things to happen. And so we're very excited. And this is how you make it happen. It's keep your head down and do the work. What you find in life is that, in my experience, and this isn't just Guyana, this is everywhere in the world, You know, whether it's Silicon Valley, you go to a meeting of startup founders, you go to a meeting of a construction company or a small business association, it's 90% talk and 10% action. When our firm is focused on 90% action, 10% talk, and just do the work, and it's not about the fame and glory. Be quiet, run deep, run silent, our race and our pace, and stay focused, and support everyone that we can and teach and learn from each other and work together. But ultimately, we just got to keep our head down and keep pushing because that's what we're facing. And that's what I get up every day and do. And the nights are short and the days are long and 10, 15 here at night. And I've got a dinner meeting after this and, you know, it, wow. <laughs> and it keeps going. Yeah. I'm going to uh, post them after this. <laughs> good for you. I'm jealous. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I I pack my bathing suit every trip I go, and I can tell you that it stays in my suitcase every place I go. You know, and I because it's just that's what you do as a banker. You just you work. No, but, but when no. you're oh sorry, go ahead. I said when you're blessed to love what you do and be passionate about it. Yeah, there's good days and bad days, and it's a stressful business. But when you're helping change and be a part of history, it's kind of cool. It's an opportunity that not a lot of people are afforded, and so it's. uh it's really a privilege and an honor, and it's not something I take lightly. Neither does my team. So I respect your um, your vision, your boldness, and your foresight for what you're doing for the Guyanese economy, and well, I guess the the Caricom economies by extension. In you know, in what you're doing, and as we get ready to wrap, I would like to give you open mic, open forum, open platform. So one to plug yourself, anything you're doing, how we can find you, and anything else you'd like to leave us with that we may not have discussed today that you want to ensure that the audience, that really resonates with the audience? Well, thank you. And and first of all, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's always a privilege and an honor getting involved with these podcasts and and getting the word out there and just sharing the story because that's how people learn. People that want to do the work and show up and learn, that's what it's about. Fortune favors the bold and there's a hundred other cliches and memes that are out there and <laughs> but ultimately it's keep your head down and you don't know everything but that's where you build teams and you find people and you do good business and and you learn you know what i mean i've 
all of a sudden people are going to say, oh, well, Steve went from nothing or, you know, they weren't doing anything to now all of a sudden they've got their hands in a hundred different things. Well, it takes nine months to make a baby. And when you're in the kitchen cooking, you know, there's everything cooks at different speeds and you got to coordinate it all to come out perfectly at the same time. And that's a lot of what we've been doing. And so that's our focus online. You can find us on LinkedIn, our websites, sc3.ltd, Smart City Clearing Company Limited, the name of our organization. We've got offices in Guyana. We've got offices in Kingston, Jamaica, and we're in the process of opening an office in Saudi Arabia. And so with that, we're out here, we're doing the work. I've got partners and people working across four continents and it's our race and our pace, And we're, but we're always happy we're approachable i'm pretty easy to track down if, if someone wants to put forth the effort and you know i always try to make time even if it's a quick 20 minute call you know while i'm grabbing a ride between meetings just to introduce myself or get to know someone and see how i can help and i always try to to point someone in at least one or two directions that can help create value and add value and you know because i'm sitting here today because of the shoulders of the giants that came before me like isaac newton said i've really hope that Guyana can create it's a once in a lifetime opportunity and I think a lot of people are going to sleep on it and miss it and they're going to be upset and they're going to be sucking their salt as they say because they didn't <laughs> to do it but you know it is what it is so many people want to show up to the finish line and collect the trophy and get the picture but they don't want to sign up for the marathon they don't want to run the marathon but most importantly they don't want to practice for the marathon you don't realize that if you're a marathon runner by the time that you go to run the marathon that you're competing in, you've already run five, six, seven, eight marathons throughout the course of your training to make sure you can do it on the day that it matters. And people don't want to put the work in. And it's been five years of showing up every day and beating down and chopping the wood and just chopping, chopping, chopping. And eventually the dam will break and the floodgates will open and it'll be good. But until then, you know, we just keep showing up and working. Love it. Love it. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Jasmine, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Privilege and an honor. Podcast World, there you have it. Investing in Guyana with Stephen Jasmine. Subscribe to The Value at thevalue.show. Check us out in your podcast player of choice and be sure to give us a five-star rating. And with that, Podcast World, Cabin Studios, Guyana, we are out. <laughs>